Today on the Almond Journey podcast. We're on track to have the largest return we've ever had to our members at a time that they really need it. So it's a really nice way to celebrate the 60th anniversary. Central California Almond Growers Association President and CEO Michael Kelly shares some of his thoughts on the current state of the almond industry. Welcome back to the Almond Journey podcast brought to you by the Almond Board of California. On this show, we discover how growers, handlers, and other stakeholders are making things work in their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich, and I get to travel up and down the valley, virtually in this case, to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their operations, connect with their local communities, and advance this almond industry. Today, we get to travel down to Kerman, California, to visit with Michael Kelly, President and CEO of the Central California Almond Growers Association. With four shellers in two different locations, both Kerman and Sanger, the association is the largest holer sheller of almonds in the world. Michael shares several insights in this episode about the current state of the almond industry, ranging from economics to logistics to technology to supply chain to drivers of past, present and future success. Michael was hired into this role in 2005, so he's been on the job for about 18 years now. And before that, he held a series of leadership positions in the cotton industry. We begin our conversation by talking about his journey to almonds. Well, I'm kind of a transplant just like the rest of the almond industry. I, I grew up in the Imperial Valley. My dad was a cotton, alfalfa, and wheat farmer. And when I was a young man, I started growing cotton and wheat as well. Then when I graduated from the University of Southern California, I wanted, always wanted to go back to the Imperial Valley and farm with my dad, but, you know, farm on my own independently. So that was my goal, but um, cotton was starting to decline. And so I was offered a position working for a cotton company called Producers Cotton Oil Company. I ran cotton gins and I did that. Uh, I trained in Arizona, moved to California, and I moved to several cotton gins here. But cotton started to decline. At the latter part of my cotton career, I was actually working for the um, National Cotton Board. And I was director of field services in the Western United States. And cotton was on this rapid decline in the West. We went from about a million three hundred fifty thousand acres of cotton down to you know right now there's right out about probably two hundred fifty thousand acres that's going to be grown in the western United States. So it was a steep decline. So in two thousand five, I was looking for another opportunity, and there was a position that was open here as the president and CEO of Central California Almond Growers Association, and I applied. And I went through an extensive interview with a lot of other candidates, and I was fortunate enough to have gotten the job. And that was uh, that was 18 years ago. So it's been a long ride. Yeah. And after, you know, everything you've seen in the cotton industry and now everything you've seen over the last 18 years in almonds, is there anything that stands out that you think, you know, the almond industry could or should learn from the cotton industry? Well, almonds are a little bit different because they don't trade on an open market. So they're highly susceptible to the ups and downs of the growing conditions that are existing in the marketplace. One thing that is really analogous to the cotton industry is the issues with regards to domestic versus uh, foreign trade. Almond industry is so reliant on foreign trade, just like the cotton industry was. As we've seen with the supply chain situation where there was a slowdown in trying to get a product out of the market, it had a detrimental effect 
on almonds. At the same time, it's also had a detrimental effect on, on cotton. And that crushed consumption, that destroyed demand. So for the almond industry, you know, at, the, at a time when we thought maybe that we had a, a market that could support 2.8 billion pound crop, maybe we can't support that anymore in this new reality coming after the pandemic. So, you know, those dynamics, those global situations with regards to the uh, underlying economy that uh, both crops have, there's a lot of similarities. Yeah. You know? And maybe talk more about that. You know, the, these last few years have been such a challenge in so many ways. I mean, you just alluded to kind of the supply chain issues. And do you see that as more of a, a temporary issue as a result of COVID or is this a, a new new paradigm? Uh, does it kind of sound like you mentioned. Yeah, I think with regard to the supply chain issue, it sounds like we're pretty close to getting a union contract at the ports. The volume of disruption that's taken place at the port has gone away as general overall consumption has gone down because of the pressures of inflation. So that seems to be remedying itself. But, you know, it's interesting because of the situation with what's taken place with inflation and, and what's going on overseas, you question whether if someone has the ability to put a protein on the on the table like a meat versus what could be perceived as a, a somewhat of a luxury item like an almond, the meat protein is going to win. And so in that, there probably has been some destruction that has been done on the consumption side that, that we would have seen prior to the pandemic. Now, what that number is, I, I don't know. And will it, will it come back to those levels? Yes. If things improve globally, but, you know, the short term of, of what we're hearing with the potential of going dipping into a recession, you know, a recession here means that globally, you know, it's going to be worse for a lot of people in a lot of third world countries that we're relying on to ship almonds to. Right. And, and with you having been in your role here for 18 years, you've seen a recession before. What, what does that mean for almond growers and handlers usually? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. You know, I could speak from a Huller Scheller standpoint that one thing that we see is there's, there's usually somewhat of a, a tipping point for us where, you know, we've enjoyed extremely strong prices for hulls and shells, which we derive 90% of our revenue from. We don't derive them from the kernels. The growers retain the ownership of the kernels, but usually there's a tipping point where one of the major sectors, and in this case, the dairy industry, will have a, a level of difficulty in their financial structure Dairy products are being produced at a price that is below the cost of production. And that's been going on for about four months now. And so this is what happened last time. And typically, dairy is usually the, the precursor that causes a greater malaise in the other sectors, the other commodity markets. So we're wary of that. We're still enjoying very good pricing in the holes, but those that buy them you know, are very sensitive to what they can pay in a, in a uh, four holes and shells in a, in a market that they're, they're below the cost of production. Hmm. Yeah. And, and can you talk a little bit more about that? You know, with you all deriving so much of your revenue from the holes and the shells, uh, what's important for a grower to understand when it comes to how those price fluctuations affect your ability to perform the service for growers? Well, fortunately, we're an agricultural service cooperative. So what we do is we go out and do a budget and we set a hauling fee so that we know that we can be made whole so that we never have to go to the grower and ask for money back at the end of the year. So that's that's a very envious situation. 
other haulers and shellers that are independents, they do the same thing. They're going through budgeting and they're trying to decide what they need to charge next year. And, you know, all of us, we try and be very, very conservative. So we keep our businesses in um, a good financial state. Now, on the kernel level, on that's a different game. That's the packers. Product has to move. And there's been a great malaise in the market with regards to growers turning loose a product because they don't want to lose money because on the kernel side, they're below the cost of production. So they're holding on for a higher price point. Almonds have a, you know, not a forever shelf life. You know, at some point they, they will degrade, but they can stay in pretty good shape for about two years if they're well, well cared for in a, a warehouse. But there is a tremendous amount of carryover. It's about 788 million pounds. I was just reading yesterday, and that has to go away. Now, there's a pretty good opportunity with the crop being off compared to where we were last year for it to dip down and get that carryover down to a level that would be conducive to increasing crop prices um, at the grower level. So we're, we're hopeful of that. And I know every grower in the state is hopeful of that because, you know, with the cost of everything, you know, the, the growers need to make, be made whole as well to keep this industry as strong as it's been in the past. Right, right. And if we were looking at another kind of monster crop and we were had that huge carryover, it might be just, uh, you know, setting us up for, for disaster. So maybe talk about this year's crop. How, how is it looking out there? What are you hearing from growers? Well, it's really a mixed bag. And one of the things that's interesting is as you walk fields up and down the valley, you know, you can see that in some cases the crop looks pretty good. That's hard to believe because the Almonds went through so much. They went through some freeze events. They went through some snow events. They went through situations where there was minimal amounts of, of beef flight time uh, that were substantially lower than they'd been in previous years. There were wind events that knocked over a tremendous amount of trees. There was just an unprecedented amount of rain. So having said that, the crop is down. By how much is unknown. There's some people that are think the crop is actually um, slightly off from where it was last year. I don't think that's the case. I think in the whole scope of things, I think the crop is off probably about 20% potentially from where it was last year. But, you know, we'll see. Time will tell. And it is interesting in the almond business, when the crop is light, just as we're seeing now, the almonds are huge on the tree. And that weight can make up for some of the difference. The last few years, we've We've seen a very small count sizes on the almonds, but this year when you're going from a small count size to what could be a really large count size year, a matter of fact, we've changed all of our, our screens in the plants to accommodate large count size almonds because we can see them coming. And in that case, you could make up a lot of weight. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, going back a little bit to kind of how things have been these past few years, I know you kind of mentioned that uh, the prices have been down for almonds, prices for holes and shells have been relatively strong. How have the last few years been from a hole or sheller perspective? And has there been any permanent changes you've had to make to how you approach business based on those conditions? Well, you know, the best way to answer that, this is really interesting. This year is our 60th anniversary of the founding of the association, which started in 1963. We just finished our audit and we don't have the final report, but it actually looks like this year is probably going to be the best year that we ever had. If it's not, it's going to come very, very close. 
but um, we're on track to have the largest return we've ever had to our members at a time that they really need it. So it's a, it's, it's a really nice way to celebrate the 60th uh, anniversary. And it's a real testament to how high these hull and shell prices were this last year. And, you know, we hope it continues, but I got to be real honest with you. Each year is a new book, uh, Cooperative Huller Sheller. You know, we close out the books, we pay out a dividend, and then we start the new year and we're broke, you know, because now we have a new story to tell. So we actually start selling the hulls and shells and all the byproducts. And then we paint a picture that we're kind of anticipating through budgeting. And then the next year we'll pay out another dividend. So it, it is it is interesting that we're we'll close this year out and it'll be the best year that we've ever had. And then we start a new story and we pay out everything to the members. We don't hold you know anything back except uh, we do hold about four years of retains on account as a kind of a backstop. And that carries us through this new period when we start getting revenue again from the new crop from holes and shell and hash that we'll be paying the dividend on the next year. Well, and as you talk to, you know, the board members and, and the other uh, farmer owners of the cooperative, what's your take on kind of the current state of the almond industry? What's happening out there? What they're worried about? Uh, you know, what your your gut tells you uh, might be important in the coming years? Well, you know, I got to be real honest with you. I've got to give a lot of credit to uh, the innovators in the industry. Um, I've got to give a lot of credit to the Almond Board of California. Remember, I used to work for the National Cotton Board. I was there for nine years. And the Cotton Board, National Cotton Board, carried oversight on Cotton Incorporated, which was the uh, research and promotion side of the cotton industry. Analogous to that in California is the Almond Board that's carrying on the research and promotion of the almond industry. And they have done a stellar job. And also the innovators like uh, at Blue Diamond with uh, some of the things that they've come up with almond milk, all of the innovation that they've come up with, with the different uh, flavored almonds. That innovation, you know, just getting away from a brown skin almond to a smokehouse almond and finding further innovation, that has spurned this industry to a point that's going to carry the day into the future. It's going to continue to be a strong industry. The only thing that's different now is trying to sort out where is the best acreage level for almonds to exist in California. And the industry will find that level. And we've already seen a big bump in pricing over last year because of the estimates that have come out on this potential for this crop coming up. And so that'll, that'll help the industry out tremendously in carrying on to the next year. But there is a lot of sorting out that's going on right now, but that innovation is gonna carry the day long into the future. Wow. The cooperative model seems to fit you know, what you're doing really well, but most of the cooperatives that I run into have been around a long time, you know, in your case, 60 years now, are there still new cooperatives popping up? Is the model still one that if you're going to start today, it, it makes sense? Uh, I'm just curious where the, all the young co-ops are. Well, you know, that's a, that's really a good question. I've been in cooperatives all my life. My dad was in Southwest marketing. I was in Calcott. We were in a Imperial wheat growers, so, you know, I'm a big fan of co-ops, but there are not really any new cooperatives that are starting. You know, in a cooperative, you have a group of people that get together that have a common cause to do something that they can't do on their own. And that's the essence of an agricultural service cooperative like ours. 
And so you see now more of a presence of individuals getting together and, and forming an independent company where they will start a business in which maybe there's five or 10 people that come together and they've got large amounts of almonds and they'll go out and they'll contract with other growers to come in and see them, but they're operating as an independent. And in so doing, their business model is a little different than ours. Uh, we give all the money back to the association on an annual basis. I just think the cooperative business model is the superior business model. It's served agriculture well for, you know, going back to the 1930s. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, you don't see a, a lot of new cooperatives starting up. In fact, you actually see with some commodities, cooperatives are starting to decline in the United States. Either they consolidate and become bigger, or the, the crop mix has changed so much that it's not a viable business anymore. So there, there's not as many as there used to be, but the ones that are still around are still doing quite well because of that business model concept. And remember, a cooperative is only as good as the agricultural farmer board of director. You know, I'm just the humble servant of the board of directors, but the board of directors are the ones that actually carry the culture and provide the impetus for the organization to continue. I'm just the, the humble caretaker for a moment in time. Right. Is there anything that stands out as the most significant change that's happened in your career that's, that's maybe improved uh, the hauling and shelling operations? Well, um, to be quite honest with you, hauler shellers used to be quite small in size with minimal amount of decking. One of the things we're very proud of is we went to a, a, a new deck that's called a, a BM&M deck that is very robust. It's very large. It has an oscillating motor that, that rather than shake the product up and down, it oscillates, which actually expands the um, space for the almond. We're very proud of that. Color sorting in the future is going to be a big deal. There's a potential that color sorting can actually replace some decking in the plant. That's probably the next innovation because the technology that, that has taken place in the color sorting industry is just phenomenal. We use color sorting in the, in the huller shellers right now, but we are actively talking about using color sorters in other locations in the plant to replace decking. And that'll be a major in innovation for the industry in the years to come. I see that happening in short order. Very cool. And, and did I hear correctly that you also are using drones uh, in the operation? Where do those come in? Well, that came out of several fires that took place on some of our competitors in the state that had a very large scale fire several years ago. And it, at the time, it looked like there was a potential that we were going to not be able to get our full coverage for insurance, what's called the reinsurance that we need to have because the money that we have that is in the hull and shells on the outside lines is susceptible to fires if it's not monitored. And we had always used a, what's called a thermocoupler to check the monitors along the columns of the hull lines. And that's where you take a wire and you stick it into a device and it, it tells you what the temperature is. The only thing we're concerned about with temperature is when we see the temperature from the week before rise, that's an indication that we got a problem. The thermocouplers worked great, but uh, the problem with the thermocouplers, it only tells you what the temperature is, is where the column is located. So what we did 
And this was in discussions with our board of directors. They said, well, why don't you try and get a, a drone and fly the, the piles? And we had a, a real talented fellow that was on staff. And we came, I came out of the board meeting and I got to be quite honest with you. I said, well, I don't know what to do with a drone. Do you guys have any idea? And this gentleman who's a graduate of the Department of Industrial Technology at Fresno State, where there actually is a, a hulling school now for almonds, um, he said, well, you know what? We could probably attach an infrared camera on the bottom and that would immediately transmit the temperature as it was flying over the product. So I was very skeptical. And so within two weeks, we had the drone. Uh, the same two weeks, we had the infrared device we attached to the drone, and we were flying the entire, all the uh, hull lines on the property in very short order. It was giving us an indication of what all the temperatures on. And once again, all we're looking for on the next week when we did it again is was there a fluctuation? So what's interesting is before we were reactive, we'd see fire or we'd see smoke that was emanating from the pile or the thermal couplers would suggest something that may be happening. Now, every week we're flying those piles and we see the temperature change, we can react to it very quickly. And many times we'll go in and just dig out the pile. And in the course of doing that, we're nine times out of 10, glad we did. You know, it's not a false alarm. And so it's prevented us this year from having any fires when others in the Valley did. So we have actually taken kind of a leadership role. We've invited everyone that we could get the word out to, to come down, get this program, to see how it works. And the focus on that is we don't derive any financial revenue from that. Um, our goal is to save our insurance because um, our reinsurers at Lloyd's of London were going to not insure us anymore. And so we saved the industry, um, I believe, from that happening because the representatives from Lloyd's of London actually came out to our facility here in Kerman to see us fly the drone. And the next year, we actually did have insurance. It was somewhat less than what we uh, wanted in total, but it actually helped us to realize that now with the drone, we have actually mitigated the risk substantially. So we actually feel like we don't have to have as much insurance now. So it's, it's been a good, good journey. That's incredible. Yeah. So you save, you save your insurance that you might lose otherwise, but also you don't need as much. Right. Wow. And I, and I, I think the key is to Tim is that instead of being reactive now, we're proactive. One of the things that's really interesting that we didn't count on is this gentleman that I told you that, that was on staff that developed the program, he's actually flying the stockpile yard. And now he's actually seeing product that either the grower knew or didn't know was wet when it came in to the stockpile yard. Because before we're talking about holes and shells, the hole lines and the shell lines, and we're doing this on a regular basis in the season, we're um, flying the stockpile yard and we can see heat signatures on that pile that's different than the peripheral stockpiles that are around this one with the heat signature. And we can immediately pick it up, get it through the plant and save that product from deteriorating in the product or causing a problem later on. Absolutely. Well, I know I'm running up against time here, Michael, but this is so great. I, I really appreciate everything you're sharing here. Anything else that we didn't get to that you think would be a good message to share with an audience of almond growers and handlers throughout California? Tim, in, in regards to 
of the innovation in the industry, you know, so much of it is, as I talked about a, a little bit, is, is board directed, but it's also the individual that is uh, the president and CEO. And I want to give a great compliment to Richard Waycott uh, in his last year. You know, he's, he's the guy that was the command of the ship and he was so eloquent, never frazzled, had a good temperament. And he's served this industry well and has been a wonderful spokesman for everything that they've accomplished and everything they've achieved. And uh, so I want to give him a great compliment on this innovation as well. He, he made sure that uh, the industry had good people that were working for the Almond Board and they served him well and he served this industry well. Well, I think that's a great note to end on right there. Thank you very much to Michael Kelly for taking the time to share his perspective and years of wisdom here on the episode. It was neat to hear the perspective of another Holer Sheller to get them on the show. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. We at the Almond Journey podcast believe everyone in the almond industry has a story of their own of how they're making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing the voices of industry leaders, people like Michael Kelly, may spark a connection or an idea that you can use in your own journey. And that's why we want to feature these stories of innovation, resilience, and community here on this podcast. I hope you'll come along for the ride by subscribing to the show on your podcast platform of choice. And please pass it along to others in the industry so we can all share in this almond journey together.